and welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what aged like fine strawberry wine and what aged like milk. I'm Izzy, I use Cicere pronouns. I'm Kit, I use she, her pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things, at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Um... So we've been gone so for a been, hot minute. We've been gone for a hot minute. Uh, <laughs> during that time, I have been focusing on Hope's Hearth and Colchis, as well as like artwork and stuff to like get shit out of the way. Um, and also, you know, making sure that I, I rest and take proper breaks and stuff. Like it makes it sound like I've been busy, busy, but in reality, I've actually just been much better about scheduling things. So that I don't have, like, shit just happen randomly and wildly out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have what have you been up to? I ran away to Portland at the end of January and had a lot of fun with my friend. Uh, it was my, my, my big birthday trip. And very much enjoyed it. Very much enjoyed the Portland area. Good food. A lot of fun, interesting things to see. Um, <laughs> it kind of cracked me up. Like, every time I'd mention, yeah, I'm going to Portland, like... Like, the concerned older conservatives would be like, are you going to be okay? Like, are you going to be okay there? Like, the way they acted, it's like they expected me to step off the plane and for some guy to come up and mug me. (laughs) And it's like, I grew up in California. I've been to Los Angeles several times. Why are you guys so worried about me going to Portland? You know, like, I get it. There's like a, a thing going on there. But it's like the whole time I was there, there was like one thing that made me a little nervous. Otherwise, it was like we stayed out of the trouble areas and we were fine. You know, you just yeah. got to know where it's okay to go and where it's not okay to go. But it was a lot of fun. I spent most of my um, saved for vacation money on books, which should surprise no one. But I was a very happy <laughs> camper because I got several books I've been looking for because um, since we're doing a tiny little ramble, I have a curse where if I start collecting a series after like three or four of that series are out, I will only be ever to find... Uh, I will only ever be able to find copies that are not the first or second copy. For example, there's one manga that I love called Hakume and Mikochi. Every time I would go to a bookstore, I would find the third volume and only the third volume. Oh, no. Whatever bookstore. So we're putting around at bookstores and there's like, oh, we've got one through seven. I'm like, grabs one, grabs two. Okay, now I can start collecting properly. <laughs> I've got one, two, and three. Now I can take my time getting the rest. I'm good. <laughs> That's what I've been up to. I did that. I've been puttering away at art and that's pretty much it. I am potentially being scouted by another uh, unpremiered uh, audio fiction podcast to voice one of their characters. Oh, they heard the Southern accent that I do on the Colchis pilot and they were like, you would be perfect. And I'm like, me, (laughs) me bashful flower the skunk gif <laughs> me <laughs> so that'll that'll be fun the the person who's writing this podcast it's called cauterized it's going to be a horror musical podcast huh. um it is very sweet um i'm excited that they're, they're uh she's still writing the like script and stuff down so i have yet to get something that i can record an audio sample for her for mm-hmm. But I have given her samples of, like, my normal speaking voice as well as, like, variations of the southern accent that I can do. So, 
Very cool. That'd be fun. Podcasting is fun. I'm, I mean, I'm, we're it, here. Yeah. We started a blog for Colchis as well while I was gone. Uh, like during the break that we had here on Abbey Archives, like we started a Tumblr blog for Colchis. I have become mutuals with a podcast I never thought I would become mutuals with. And I'm making friends. And there are at least 20 people that aren't friends of mine specifically that are excited for Colchis to happen. So I'm just like, <laughs> huh? <laughs> I am d- d- very outside my comfort zone. <laughs> You've got fans, Izzy. Ah. You've got fans. Ah. You're getting popular. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Also, uh, since we are podcast listeners here and podcast fans, who else was delighted by Cecil Sweep on Tumblr? (laughs) Me. I'm so seeing, delighted. People forgot the, their fucking roots. Like, they, who the fuck is this faceless motherfucker? Like, you forget your roots. He was the original sexy man. Did he have a face? No, but he wore it with honor. <laughs> no, he has a face. He has a face. It's just painfully average. <laughs> now, the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home. <laughs> Gotta admit, that was one of my favorite responses I saw someone post. They're just like, Cecil has a face, but... And, and the people reminding us that Cecil has a terrible fashion sense. One oh God, one of yeah. my favorite reactions to the whole thing was when Cecil was up against uh, Regan? Regan, yeah, Reagan. from uh, Mob Psycho. And it's, oh, and it's Cecil Palmer with the steel chair! Because you just see Cecil just like looming over Regan, just like about to nail him. She's like, yes! <laughs> or when it finally came down to Sans, it was like, and now the weather. Megalovania in the background being outplayed by a indie band. <laughs> so yes, if you guys don't have Tumblr cover of Megalovania. Yeah. So if you guys don't have Tumblr, for a little context behind this, um, recently they have released polls on Tumblr. So someone decided to do a Tumblr sexy man poll because everyone knows the sexy man originated on Tumblr. And, you know, in, in it was the, I think it was almost the exact same starter bracket that Twitter started with as yep. well. Except and Cecil was there. Cecil was in the Twitter one as well. Uh, really? Cecil lost out in the first round. To who? Uh, I don't remember who Cecil was up against in the first round, but like Cecil huh. lost out in the first round, which truly goes to show that Reagan is the. He's the er, Twitter sexy man. Twitter sexy man. And, and Tumblr. Listen, the Tumblrites, we know. We know. Okay? <laughs> it, Cecil is where we begin. Now, okay, so technically, actually, Cecil was not the first sexy man on a Tumblr, but Three Eyes White Cecil was sort of the epitome of that, as well as realizing, wait, we can take this in a different direction. I saw a lot of really good, like, tumblr history discussion about the evolution of like what it means to be a sexy man on tumblr it was a lot of fun very distinct shift away from just making your generic white dude Mm -hmm. to like nah one of my favorite depictions of cecil is like he's like going bald and wears like the worst things and his glasses have a chain on them okay but he canonically has a horrible fashion sense oh he does he does like i'm just saying one of my favorite depictions of cecil looks 
absolutely nothing like the like very at the time popular version of Cecil that was going around that I admittedly fell into when I used to cosplay him. Yeah. <laughs> Which was the, you know, the sweater vest and the the eyeball on the forehead. Now I just <laughs> dress like myself, draw an eye on my forehead and eyeliner and just I'm like I'm Cecil. <laughs> Who can fight you, right? Works. No one can fight me. Yeah. Anyway, Redwall. <laughs> Redwall, let's do it. <laughs> now that we've so, jabbered some of the energy out. So today we are reading the uh, first seven chapters. Um, also the 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 um, prologue of Martin the Warrior, um, which is one of my favorite books in this series. Uh, it's very good. My copy is beat to shit. Um, <laughs> content warnings for this book include, uh, slavery, uh, bodily harm, um, I forgot to put in more content warnings, I'm sorry. Torture, I guess? Yeah. Torture, attack by birds, as always, birds. Um, yeah, torture, birds, uh... Illness, uh, illness, illness mentioned and illness used as a fear tactic, um, which did make my stomach do a couple little jittery flips, but you know, uh, poison, poison as always. Well, not as always. There's some books that don't use poison. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think that's it so far. Pretty much like for as intense as this book starts, it still feels kind of soft. Like, we're still in the beginning of the book, so things haven't quite escalated as much. Um, yeah. So, speaking of the beginning of this book... <laughs> <laughs> nice transition there. Uh, we open this book with a song and three familiar faces. The Otter Twins bag and run, along with the little mole grub. The trio are singing a song as they haul a log through the snow and pelt each other with snowballs. But is it a log a log a log? It is not a log a log a log. Oh well. Uh, a traveling hedgehog is caught in the crossfire and the trio stop immediately contrite. Grub apologizes and a pretty mouse maid waves it off. We learn the hedgehog is named Bulltrip. He asks the trio where they're headed and when he learns they're headed for the abbey, he happily offers to haul the log and the four others behind him. Apparently, he and his friend had been looking for the abbey. We learn that the mousemaid is named Abrisha, and keeping to his promise, the sturdy and strong bull trip hauls them through the snow with ease. See, I love that this book starts in a time that readers are already familiar with. Also, is Abrisha how you're supposed to say it? I don't know. How were you pronouncing it? Abredia. Which is I mean, you're it might probably be. I right. Don't know. Again, we have to. You have to remember, we're also missing the English accent, which might help us in this situation. Yeah. But. Ben will tell us if we're wrong. Yeah. The Otter Twins. I'm just like, hey, I know the these babies. guys. They're no longer babies. They're still troublemakers, but they're older troublemakers now. They're like teenagers ish, maybe. Because Brian does not like to commit to how in the heck these animals age. How's time work? We don't. <laughs> we in just the Abbey don't grounds. <laughs> in the Abbey grounds, Abbot Saxtus and Old Simeon admire the snow-frosted Abbey. 
Even being blind, Simeon knows the Abbey looks lovely, and Sax disagrees. Now, the Abbey is described absolutely lovingly, uh, like as though it is a frosted cake. It is dust. It is covered in snow. Icicles hang from the walls. Like it looks like a snow fairy castle almost. It is wonderfully described, it's- and we don't normally start Redwall books in winter. But in the context, it does make sense. Like, we do learn later on why they are starting in the winter. Yeah. And I do love the context that Brian has worked in here because pretty much, like, wintertime is the season of rest as long, like, as long as you've had a chance to stock up your larder, as long as, like, you guys, you're prepared. Winter mm-hmm. is a time of rest. Winter is a time where you and everybody can get together and enjoy the fruits of your labor. You share stories, you do crafts. Like a lot of the craft work we used to see, like people would be like, oh, how could people make such intricate things back then? It's because they had a whole winter to just sit around and make stuff. Yeah. As long as they, they didn't had have other stuff. things to do, like, yeah. you know, watch TV or be on the internet and rot their brains out. Or have to go to work when it's or have negative degrees outside and your car's mm-hmm. like, God, please no. I'm sorry, Jeep, I feel the same way. So, Simeon smells the new beasts approaching, as well as the treble trio. He's glad to hear it. There will be new tales in Cavern Hole tonight. And again, like me mentioning how charming it is to see like this mix of the familiar characters with these two new characters. And a little part of me is almost sad that like they're not the focus of the book. It's like, I wish we got a chance to see more of them. You know, just the way that Brian has set them up already. Like, I already have suspicions who um, she's related to, but yes. Yeah. Old Friar Cocklebur holds reign over the messy, uh, messy, over the busy kitchens, which as always are preparing a feast. This time, it's for midwinter. He tells Dury, and I had a reaction like, Dury! Dury! <laughs> who's sneaking more hot root into the soup to go help his uncle with the drink. The cheeky young hedgehog swipes a candy chestnut, saying the drink's all ready and Uncle Gabe is napping before the feast. Like, they got that shit on a lockdown. Mm-hmm. Like, these, these guys, they're good. They know what they're doing. He's like, please, come on. Cellar hogs know what they're doing. The two travelers are given a tour, a wash, and clean, if old, habits to wear for the feast. Abrisha is amused by the many young mice trying to charm her, each boy fighting to get her attention and favor. Saxtus solves this issue of where she is to sit by having her join him, Simeon, and Bulltip at his bench. Doesn't he get to enjoy a pretty maid's company once in a while? And in this case, it's very cute because, like, Saxtus is young enough that this isn't creepy, but he's also old enough that we understand he's doing this to, like, protect her and give her an out. Um, yeah. which makes it charming. Cause like, yeah, he does still enjoy, enjoy the, her beauty, but he's not going to make any passes at her like the younger mice will. Yeah. The, the younger mice are being a bother and are going to continue to bother her. And so Saxus is like, no, 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 you're our guest. You get to sit with me. And it stops that from happening so she can enjoy her time at the feast and at Redwall. Mm-hmm. So, Good job, like, Saxus. This is one of those... This is one of those moments where we see that, like, this being used for good. Yeah. And she is more than happy to sit with the three. 
Uh, Bulltip has a hearty appetite and once Grace is over, digs in with gusto. What are they saying Grace a uh, two? <laughs> we don't know. They just we say know. it. <laughs> they just say it. Uh, Simeon offers Abricia some of the strange carbonated fizzy dandelion cup, which if we remember was invented during their like time. It, like Uncle Gabe invented it. Yeah. He he invents this quite by accident, and part of me is just like, how though, sir? Um, it's because just like dandelion soda, basically. Yeah. Because, like, something like carbonation can happen by accident, but it's, like, very specific circumstances. Um, Abrisha likes it, and he then catches her off guard by asking for affirmation that she's a healer. She's startled he'd realize this, you know, being blind, but says that, yes, he, uh, she is. Uh, Bulltrip says he's no healer, just a traveling friend and bodyguard of Abrisha. Simeon feels his paw and agrees the young hedgehog is plenty guardian enough. No. How dare. Stupid alarm. <laughs> um, the meal is a jolly one. Good food and good humor being passed around. Bulltrip and Aubrisha fit right in. We do not get much of a description of the food. It's like listed what the food is, but we don't, despite this being a feast... Do it's, not get the typical feast description. It's literally just a paragraph, and it's just like, holy crap, Brian really wants to get on get on with it. Yeah, he wants to get into the story, as we all do. Uh, let's see. It's literally... Okay, so it's one paragraph. Laughter and merry chatter rose to the rafters of the big room beneath the abbey. There was warmth there, good companionship, and good humor. Dishes went this way and that from paw to paw. Snow cream pudding, hot fruit pies, colorful trifles, tasty pasties, steaming soup, new bread with shiny golden crusts, old cheeses studded with dandelion acorn and celery, sugared plums and honeyed pears vied for place with winter salads and vegetable flans. Abrecia and Boltip joined in the merriment, enjoying the food and basket. (laughs) Abrecia and Boltip joined in the merriment, enjoyed the food and basked in the legendary hospitality of Redwall Abbey. That's it. That's the only real description we get about the food, which usually, you know, that would take up at least a page, if not a page and a half. So, yeah, uh, we don't get much of a description of the food whatsoever. And then it kind of goes right into um, after the feast. Late that evening, after all the dibbins have been put to bed, Bulltip asks if anyone sleeps in this place. And Saxtus explains that since it's winter... They don't have work to do in the morning, so they eat when they're hungry and sleep when they're sleepy. When Abrisha asks if they do other than that, Formal counters with his own question. They're travelers. Have they any tales? Everyone there has heard the Abbey tales many times. And so pillows and chairs are pulled into a circle, uh, with uh, Abrisha and Bulltip put into two high back carved chairs as like the center of attention, because they're the storytellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she reveals that she knows uh, Martin. She'd recognized him on the tapestry and knew he was the guardian of the Great Abbey. Saxus reveals that they had known his spirit, but as Dandan and Mariel had been gone for a season and a half or so, there's not been a peep from Martin, and that they sadly know little of him past his love to help his home. Smiling, Abrisha leans forward. She knows a story, and she'll tell it. And I adore this prologue. I think that this is a great way to start the story. And I 
despite the fact that a lot of the Redwall books where they 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 start off as a tale being told run into weird writing issues, mm-hmm. they are some of my favorites because like they're stories being told. We're hearing the mythology of this world. There there's there's charm to them that like the ones that are being told as the events happen don't have. Not just that, but I think this just helped, like, click something into place. Because I make a note later on in the book about how, like, even going through, like, intense situations, this book feels softer. There's less urgency. I'm not saying it's worse. I quite enjoy reading it. But it's like, I don't feel the urgency. I don't feel as much concern as I did in other books. And I realize, well, that's because this is a prequel. I know Martin survives. And the other characters, not to be mean, are incidental to Martin. So as long as I know he's going to survive, I'm not as worried. Now it's just a curiosity of how did he get himself out of this situation? Mm-hmm. So like, so, even, are you, uh, no, you've got more to say. Go. Yeah, I was going to say, so like, even with all the bad things that do happen, it's balanced out by the fact that I know Martin is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know he gets out of this situation. It's just what happens around him. Mm-hmm. So we get we get this this fun Arthurian tale, basically. Um, so she starts with Badrang the Stoat, a former corsair, now turned warlord along the eastern coast of the mysterious land the animals call home. His fortress is secured by hills to the north, east uh, hills to the north, coast to the south marshes to the west and forest covering everything else it's an imposing place called marshank um kit had a fun little joke in our comments uh if you would like to read it so as i'm typing out bad rang's name i'm like i am going to have such a hard time not calling him bad rag the whole time because my brain goes to oh bad rang but my brain goes oh bad rag like glad rag and it's like no it's bad rang like a bell ding ding but then my brain went no wait banger ring and then i responded with rufio rufio (laughs) (laughs) that's our true goal we need to get dante bosco to listen to our podcast oh my god yeah right (laughs) dante bosco if you ever listen to our podcast we love you love you dude you're super cool (laughs) you are super duper cool so the boss uh, of a horde of vermin, um, Badrang refused to have other stoats in his crew, believing them to be the most crafty and evil of vermin. Uh, which is sort of supported by the text? Kind of? I mean, every every villain we come across thinks they come from the best species. They're the most crafty, the most intelligent, you know? It's like, I oh. mean, um... Shit, what was his name? How is the villain of Salamandistron already left my brain? Um, um, um. To be fair, it's been a long time since we recorded, and I know I'm not going to be able to remember the name of every villain off the top of my head. Well, he was also oh, a stoat. Farago. 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 Farago no. was also a stoat. He was a weasel. Was he a weasel? Yes, he was a weasel. Because so to far, be fair, we've... To be fair. <laughs> weasels and stoats are in the same family, yes. We've, we've They're had... They're basically the same animal. It's like we've had a few weasels we've had a couple rats we've had one fox um and a wild cat a couple foxes no 
Only one. For no, like we're going to main... have more foxes going forward. Yeah, we're going to have more going I'm talking like main villain, though, not side villain. Like the Red. main villain of the book. Mostly they've been rats. Yeah. Anyway, uh, landing to the northwest, he plundered and slaved his way eastward. Once at the other shore, he made his slaves build his fortress. Always wary of the sea, he pressed them hard. Only when his sanctuary was completed could he become what he really wanted. A tyrant. Um, somebody remind me, uh, listeners, remind me to take a photo of my cool poster later. <laughs> He's on it. He's on the poster. Really? So, yeah. Cool. Uh, a strong, uh, a young strong mouse stacks stones for the future fort of Marshank. He has the spark of a fighter in his eyes. Like, the thing is, is like... The quarry is essentially inside the fortress. Which Either inside or like right to next it. to it. I mean, it's one way. It, it helps keep everything contained. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you think about it, as you're quarrying out, you're building up around it. So you're also like getting more space down yep. as well as up. So yep, it does so, kind of make sense. Yeah, and so uh, the the this is this young mouse is one of many slaves who are working in that quarry. Uh, and when a bullying weasel captain named Hisk swag- swaggers up, not e- uh, not even a whip inches from his nose can make the defiant and strong mouse flinch. How can we know it's Martin if he doesn't defiantly stare down a bully? Listen, he knows his worth as a creature. He's got he the knows warrior that these, spirit. These vermin aren't better than him. Uh, Hisk rears back to strike, but, uh, you know, he's a coward at heart. So he sort of uh, hesitates and then chooses an easier target when the young mouse still refuses to stand down. Uh, Bad Rang struts up as this is happened, happening, followed by his right-hand vermin, a rat named Gurad, and a fox named Skalrag. A hasty throne is made for him to watch the work, and Skalrag covers it with a velvet cloak. Kit and I both getting sidetracked about uh, what velvet is made out of and whether or not, uh, like, where they would have gotten silk from to make velvet. Basically boils down to pirates are pirates and they probably stole it. But I am very proud of the joke I made about, like, so was there, like, a Redwall monk mouse who snuck into Redwall's version of China to sneak out silkworms in his walking stick? Because eh. <laughs> that's actually one of the legends of how they got... Uh, silkworms out of China finally how they like they ended the monopoly on silk uh, the legend goes that a priest or a monk went to China to proselytize but also went there to discover the history or not the history but the mystery of how silk was made and he managed to convince a princess that you know show me how you do this like I'm very curious so she shows him and his walking stick was hollow so he managed to sneak out some of the silkworms and bring them back. He also learned that they liked, you know, mulberry trees and so on. So that's the story of how we got silk out of China. Like, of course, Chinese silk was still the best silk, but it didn't completely... So we stole it. Right. It was stolen. Yep. We stole it. I mean, it's the Romans. What do you expect? Yeah. Uh, so... Badrag asks if the fortress will be done by the end of summer, and Hisk temporizes, saying if it weren't so hot, if he had more beasts. I literally just imagine, like, the scene in Star Wars where it's like, the Emperor is very concerned about the construction of his new battle station. Just, I need more men. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, in a temper, Badrang throws a rock at him, cutting Hisk's lip. He demands it be done by autumn. No sniveling or excuses. Uh, so Hisk turns, taking out Badrang's bad move mood on the slaves. He focuses in on an unfortunate old squirrel who'd been walking past with a rock, laying into him harshly. And the beating is, of course, stopped by the young mouse, who then uses the whip to nearly strangle Hisk. He's stopped by Gurred blowing a bone whistle to summon other guards. It takes a host of vermin stomping and beating him to get him to let go of the whip. The mouse is brought before Badrang. He says the penalty uh, for defiance is death. What does the young mouse have to say for that? Sword point to his chest, the mouse spits out an insult and says that sword rightfully belongs to him as it had to his father. When asked his name, he proudly declares he is Martin, son of Luke the Warrior. Roll credits? <laughs> There's yeah, the boy! Right? <laughs> yeah. There's our boy! There's the boy! Like, like we were surprised, but I, I will also say that I love the cover art here of Martin, just like this photorealistic picture of a mouse ready to mess you up. Yeah, it's real good. Very good. Uh, for once, we have the same book. <laughs> <laughs> the national uh, bestseller. Yep. Okay. Uh, we cut to a mouse maid named Rose singing a song. If you would like to sing the song, see, we'll read it. See the roving river run over hill and dale to a secret forest place. Oh, my heart, Noonvale. Look for me at dawning when the suns are born in the silent beauty twixt the night and morn. Wait till the lark ascends and skies are blue. There where the rainbow ends, I will meet you. It's good shit. It's very good, very sweet. She's south of Marshank, among rocks overlooking the fortress. She's called to supper by a mole friend of hers named Grum. Uh, It's simple but good fare, and she compliments Grum on his cooking. He teases back that her quick talking could charm anyone as good as his cooking could. We learn the pair is looking for her brother named Brome, checking to see if he's in the fortress below. He's a wandering defiant sort, set to be the next chieftain of Noonvale and the Oren Vo. But not if he's been caught by the tyrant, and not if he can't get his wandering feet under control. She also worries that if he'd been caught, he may have spilled the beans about their home. I forgot to mention Grum- this in the notes, but Brom is younger than Rose. Um, so, like, that's partially why she's worried. Because she's like, yeah, he's my younger brother, but he's set to be the next chieftain, um, you know. Because, yeah, let's not take the sensible older daughter. It's got to be a boy. But, um, yep. yeah, but she's like, he's younger. Yep. He's being trained to be chieftain. So I'm worried. So he's the kid of the book. We establish right off he is the kid in the story this time around. He's the one who will need protecting and help. Yep. So Grum comforts her, saying that Brome wouldn't snitch. All the same, the pair set out as night and rain both fall towards the ominous fortress. Now, listeners, I was reading this while in voice chat in our server because sometimes I just need, like people around me like parallel play basically uh body doubling and uh ben was in the call with us and uh while i was reading on the call ben called me and kit out for pronouncing guosim wrong he says that it's supposed to be pronounced gausim because in one of the books they rhymed the uh the acronym with the word douse him 
You can tell us that, and I'm still gonna say Guosim because I have enough trouble reading half the names of these things anyway. I also told him this, and he said, I know, and that's why I love you. Ben, thank you very much, but we struggle enough with these names as is, because half of them we don't have the cultural context for. Like, there's there are several names that show up in this book that I almost started to tease about, then I stopped and I said, wait a minute, no, I don't know the cultural context behind these names. They might make sense in context. They might be from, like, they might actually be names from part of the culture on the islands that I don't know. So I shut up and just kept writing, you know? <laughs> yeah. The old squirrel Martin had saved, Bark John and his son, Feldo, look through the cracks of the slave's cage to see Martin tied between two posts. He's like, all four paws are tied out away from his body. So he's almost suspended uh, between the two posts. And this is a form of torture in and of itself. It's like you're you're held just high enough that you can't rest. And you can actually die suspended like this. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, all right, trigger warning. I'm going to talk about the brutality of crucifixion and various types of torture. Um, but it's the reason that like suspension like this and crucifixion is a brutal, it is considered a torturous death because your body literally can't circulate fluids properly if it's suspended like this. Um you will basically suffocate on your own Mm -hmm. fluids. Um, So what they're doing to Martin right here, it's not quite the same as crucifixion because he's spread eagled, not, you know, you know, nailed to anything, but it's very, very similar. He can't rest and he can't support his own weight properly. This is a very much serious torture. Yeah. And it's essentially if he isn't, uh, killed by the weather he'll be uh torn apart by seabirds in the morning Mm -hmm. um it's a kind of heavily mythologized position for him to be Mm -hmm. in because it kind of brings to mind uh like jesus as well as prometheus as you pointed out in our notes because like my first thought when they mentioned how he was suspended was like oh like christ but then when they mentioned like oh the birds will come and get him in the morning or like we're jumping ahead a little bit here but um, they mentioned the birds will come and get him in the morning. And the way that the way that he's tied and staked out, it's like, oh, he's not just a Christ figure. This is also calling upon Prometheus. Or maybe we're just reading too much into this. But hey, that's what we're here for. We're having fun. Prometheus, who was punished by the gods for bringing fire to uh, humanity, to the mortals. Hang on, hang on. When we say fire, we got to do it properly. Fire! Okay. <laughs> So Feldo is full of rage and Barkjohn is worried about the worsening weather. It'll be harder on Martin in foul weather. Like there's a storm brewing. Mm -hmm. Feldo is less worried about the weather and more worried about dawn and the large seabirds it will bring. They'd tear Martin to bits. Uh, A weasel guard, Rotnose, orders him away from the fence and off to bed. They'll have double work tomorrow, so sleep while they can. As the Elder Squirrel had feared, a gale whips up that night. Martin is battered and soaked by wind and rain, left exposed to the elements. And now we finally learn Martin's backstory. Uh, because as he is being battered by this storm, he's sort of having like flashbacks to how he got here. It's literally a case like, of record like his... stretch, so you're wondering how I've <laughs> ended up in this situation. <laughs> it's it's literally like his life is not quite flashing before his eyes, but he's in a 
state of such physical depredation that his brain is trying to help him sort through like how did i get here what happened can i escape it's it's that it's your brain yeah. trying to protect itself and the body that it pilots yeah the so meat martin suit's in danger been... quick help <laughs> martin had been born in a cave on the northwest shore lost his mother to a sea rat raid and had been raised by his father at two seasons old eh, we, we, Yet again, time is fake, apparently. Brian um, just will not stay consistent with seasons because, you know... Also, I did double check this. It's not two seasons old. It's two seasons out of infancy. Oh, okay. So who knows how old he was, but also toddler? <laughs> yeah, like infant? Are we talking like baby baby? Is this including toddler in infancy? You know? What does it mean? We don't really have a scale to go by here, which is aiding in our confusion. Yep. And again, I know I'm being pedantic, but these things do actually matter to an extent when you're trying to get us to believe in and invest in a world. No, time is fake. Well, yes, but... So, uh, uh, Martin's father had managed to take a sea rat galley for himself and his fellow warriors. Determined to take, this, uh, to take the fight to the sea rats, he preps the ship to go. Martin wants to go as well, but Luke refuses to let him tag along. He's too young. He must stay with his grandmother, who's named Windred. Uh, Martin has a warrior spirit, though, and he really wants to go. So to mollify the young mouse, Luke leaves him his sword. And this is the titular Martin sword. Also, um, I, I've never even read Discworld, but I have enough friends who are fans of Discworld that my brain immediately goes to death giving a sword to the little girl. And they're like, you can't give her a sword. What if it's dangerous? Then she will learn. She the, uh, What if she hurts herself? That will be a very good lesson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for all my... All my death has to all, take up the Hogfather's role. All my Discworld fans, tips my hat to you. <laughs> I love the Hogfather. It's a very good book. <laughs> Death is a very good character in Discworld. So I I'll admit um, at this point, I'm never going to read Discworld. It it's hit the point where like the more people recommend it to me, the more I dig my heels and about I'm not going to read this. But mm -hmm. I deeply respect it, and I love how happy it makes people who do read it. It it is quite good. Um, so I had a bit of a moment here where I I, I like just to read this bit. Martin felt as though the sword were speaking for him. Tell me what to do and I will obey. So, like, is the sword just always magic? <laughs> I, I don't think the sword is magic. I think this is, again, like, Brian pulling upon old mythologies. Because in a lot of old mythologies, swords, even if the swords themselves aren't magic, they still hold a power. And as such, like, it's like you give the sword the strength and the belief. The sword is as strong as you give it credit for. Um, you know, like, just when you name a sword, when the sword has started to do great things, people start to believe that this sword has the power. They believe it's the sword that's magical. And um, what's that called? Animism? Um, mm -hmm. when, you when, like, an object has, like, gains a soul or gains not exactly sentience, but, like, there's the there's the belief that it is alive and because the belief is there it becomes alive it's kind of like that cycle of the belief creates the thing yeah so martin as a young adult question mark as a preteen question mark a child yeah. 
he has the belief that this sword is something special. This sword itself is special because his father tells him the sword is special. Like, if we're honest, it's probably just a plain old sword because his father gives it away so easily to his son just to mollify him. It is probably well, just... it's not necessarily just to mollify him because Luke does have a moment where he remembers when his father gave him the sword. So right. this is a family sword, yeah. a family weapon. So it has more history than just that. Yeah. And it is old and it is always, you know, it's helped keep their family safe as best as it could. Yeah. So I would say, no, the sword itself is not magical, but the faith the family puts into it is where the magic comes from. It's a holy relic. It's a holy relic. Yeah, there you go. That's how holy relics work. Yes, exactly it. There you go. It is the faith put into the object. So it's not an object of worship, but the fact that they have belief in the object gives it strength. It's it's mm-hmm. it's like one of my favorite tropes of like when people decide to play with the vampire myth. It's like you don't need to burn a vampire with a cross. It's the act of having faith that whatever you're using is an object of faith that will protect you. Yep. So Luke tasks Martin with guarding the caves and the beasts who live there. He makes him swear to do good, be honorable, and to never let his heart rule his head. And never let a beast take his sword. Once he's ready to pass it on, be it his son or a beast with the spirit of a warrior, he will know and do so. And if no beast comes along, he is to hide it where only a warrior will find it. And here's where it's like, insert the cat meme or like a guy holding a cat down with his hand just with the caption, you! It's his father's fault that Martin gets so obsessed with quizzes and hiding the damn sword. Riddle quest. <laughs> riddle quest! Actually, yeah, I wonder if this book is going to have a proper riddle, riddle quest at all. Being a prequel. Who knows? Uh, Martin swears this, and in the present, Martin comes too. It's impossible to tell if it's tears or simply rain running down his face as he still faintly sees himself waving off his father. Take a shot. Manly tears. (laughs) Only manly tears allowed on Martin's face. How many times have we done this? As many times as need be. Mm. (laughs) Martin is not allowed to cry. No. Back in the past, he recalls the day he'd been caught. Tim Ballisto, a good friend and strong young mouse had been set to lead the cave dwellers because he's older than Martin by a fair few seasons. It's like Martin's a kid, but Tim Balesso's probably like good, solid teenager teenager by this point. Yeah. It annoyed Martin, so to show defiance, he'd wander along the shore away from the village while chopping wood with the sword. Martin, that is not how you... Uh, his, His grandmother arrived to scold him and bring him back, only to see vermin charging towards them. He tries to defend himself and his grandmother, but the leader, a stoat, quickly has Martin disarmed and his aunt captured. The stoat takes the sword easily. Yeah, it, it's bad Martin. ring. Like, they don't ever say his name, but it's bad ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin comes awake after being bludgeoned, already chained. He and many other slaves are then forced on a brutal two seasons long march. His grandmother had long passed away, unable to survive the march. And, like, I had a moment, like, I came to the dogma where I was going to say, well, at least they didn't kill her. But lo and behold, Martin killed her anyway. Uh, You mean Brian. The grief of her loss turns to rage, and Martin awakens once more into the reality of the gale to bellow a challenge to the storm. He swears he will survive and slay Badrang. He angry. 
very angry. He's angry. Yeah, but then I get a little snarky for a moment and I say, except you won't get to slay him because only badgers are allowed to directly kill main villains and even then it's usually a suicide attack. Because Brian hates letting the heroes actually get revenge and prefers to write villains getting their natural comeuppance, which is nice thematically in some ways and super frustrating in others. I literally cannot remember if there's a badger in this book. I don't... Part of me doesn't think I there will be. don't think so. If there is, it'll just be like one... Long time. If there is, it'll probably just be like some weird one-off badger. But I get the feeling yeah. there won't be because we're like... We're far from Salamandastron and there is no Abbey yet. And nope. so it's just like... And I don't think old Lord Brocktree's going to come trundling up like, Hey, can I start stuff? Can I can I fight with you? Can I? Can I? Can Who I? knows? We'll, we'll see as we read. Yeah. Uh, it is then that Martin hears a voice calling up from below. It's Late Rose. She asks if he knows of her brother, and he truthfully says no. He's never had the chance to, and now he's staked out to die. Uh, she says to have him call her Rose apologizing that they cannot reach him due to slick cliffs in the storm she asks if he has a request or message to pass on um i had a moment where i was like is it late rose or late rose and is it a mononym who knows who cares that was just me being goofy the way it's written though is implied that it's like all one all one word all one name it's a mononym and she just prefers to go by rose Yeah, and i don't blame Um, her yeah uh Martin only asks that they find a way to keep the birds off of him. Uh, that Rose can do with sling and tricks. Uh, we don't get any ideas to what the trick is, but she has one. Uh, there's no more reply, and Grum sees Martin has once more gone slack. Rose mutters darkly at the evil Badrang, all while prepping her sling. Grum encourages her. Martin will survive if he's half the ill temper Rose has. <laughs> I love Grum. Uh, the dawn breaks in all too great a glory for such a dark morning. Badrang has his temporary throne brought out to watch the show. He sends Gurud to wake Martin up, smiling to see the seabirds already circling. And, as an added extra cruelty, orders the slaves brought over to watch. Gerd wakes Martin up, giving him some water, even as he mocks him. Spitting the last bit of water in Gerd's face, the rat curses him and flees as the large birds begin to descend. Martin struggles, still defiant, even in his fear. And I was a little surprised they gave him water, but like you pointed out, it helps wake him up. And like, I guess he can scream a little better if he's got water in his throat. Makes a better show. Cold, fresh water in the heat of this morning after being battered with rain and seawater all night probably helps it get some of the sleep from his eyes because his probably parched and feeling gross and groggy and getting cold, fresh water when you're feeling nasty. Mm-hmm. That wakes you the fuck up. Yeah. Rose and Grum sit perched, overseeing the execution. Rose preps herself to act, encouraged by Grum, who shields his eyes in fear of the big birds. Now, we shift out to sea. Badrang had neglected his usual daily scanning of the sea at this point. Thanks to this, a cleverly painted boat had begun to slip towards the shore. A fellow stoat, once a partner, always a villain, Captain Tremon Clog of the Sea Scarab. Now, I kind of, I want to, hang on, I want to describe how the boat is painted because, um, let's see, 
It was a great green single-masted craft, practically invisible against the sea because of its camouflage coloring. Three banks of oars protruded to port and starboard, one atop the other, giving it the appearance of a monstrous insect crawling over the waves. It was Badbring's old partner in murder and treachery upon the high seas, a stoat like himself. It's got its name is Apt. Mm-hmm. It is the sea scarab. Uh, and Captain, sorry, go ahead. Captain Clog is a fat stoat dressed in typically typical bad but flashy pirate taste. He's described as having tawdry and stained silks on. He wears wooden clogs on his feet, and all of his fur is plated head to toe. Literally everything. Everything, his beard, his eyebrows, his mustache, the fur on his head, the fur on his neck. You can see braids sticking out from his clothes and over his shoes. It's just all, he is described in such a absolutely ridiculous, he, sh- he is the most character to ever character. Right. It's like, I almost wish the book was we about him because he's more of a character than Badrang is at this point. We don't get any description of what Badrang looks like. He's just a stoat, an evil stoat. He's a stoat. He's a scary stoat, apparently, but he, he's not described. Whereas Captain Tremon Clog is like, this is a fucking, he's a, this is the most character. I can't even take credit for calling him that. I believe Kai called, called him that <laughs> in the group chat while we were, while I was reading and we were talking about the book a little bit. Thank you, Kai. Um, Yeah, thank you, Kai. Eating and drinking, he's described as eating a half-dead lobster. Um, he hollers up at a ferret up in the crow's nest if he spots land. The ferret almost says no until spotting the bit of shore that Marshank is built on. Tremon is sure Badrang is there and orders his crew to put their backs into it to get them on, uh, to get them to shore. He jestingly says that surely Badrang has slaves aplenty, more than enough to man the oars of his galley. It's a shame for sea beasts to row their own craft. And well... If Badrang won't share, Tremon will just have to slay him and take what he wants anyway. He and his right hand, Grouch, laugh as they steer toward shore. I need to tell you, Grouch's name is spelt G-R-O-W-C-H. There's a few names in this book where it's like when you're reading them, you don't quite clock it at first, but then you're just like, wait, hey, come on, Brian. <laughs> Grouch, Grouch, who knows, but it is a interestingly spelled name. Just as the seabirds begin their dive towards Martin, a fierce cry rents the air. They break off the attack and after two more shrieks, scatter. Badring is confused until the sound is identified as the call of a great hunting eagle. Badring is also like, those don't live around- what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, whatever it is, though, it is scaring the birds. So Badring orders a fish brought in and tied around Martin's neck. The seabirds won't be able to resist that. And yet... Listen, sometimes the, the, the idea of getting eaten by a bigger bird is just scarier. Yeah, and like there's this weird little moment where when the fish is delivered to him, he like cuts the cord around a weasel's kilt. So the kilt just like drops around the weasel's ankles. And it's like the weasel's described as having like this big stupid grin. Like, oh, haha! look at me. I'm so goofy. I'm naked now. It feels really weird and out of place. Like so many of them are like their butts are naked anyway. I don't understand. Yeah, like 
the inconsistency about like what's okay to be naked and when it's not because it's just like if you wear clothes cool but if you don't sometimes it's funny who knows who knows so anyway back with rose and grum we see it was her making the call she's relieved the seabirds have cleared off she couldn't have managed it too many more times grum points out they're doing something to martin and rose readies her sling Gurrit is once again sent down to Martin, who isn't making it easy for the fish to be looped over his neck. Uh, a stone gets a slung stone gets Gurrit to drop the fish, and as Badrang angrily bellows at him to pick it up, a hurled rock from Grum sends Gurrit tumbling painfully to the stones below. Like they described it as a painful crunch, and for a solid minute, like a sickening crunch. I thought he was dead. same. I'm like, did he just break his neck? But no, he does did, pop up in later did chapters. Did Jet just die? It was really unclear. <laughs> <laughs> um. It clicks then that they're under attack, and Badrang orders everyone to the wall tops. They can't quite spot who's slinging the stones, though, even from up there. Uh, Feldo takes the chance to get revenge on the fox Skalrag, hurling three stones. One takes off most of the fox's left ear. Uh, now, Feldo plays at innocence, uh, and when another vermin hollers that the attack is coming from inside the walls... Um, he is repaid with a hit from a slung stone from outside the walls. Rocks flung from both sides cause great chaos. And delightfully dividing and conquering this whole sequence, like you can just hear the Benny Hill playing in the background, you know, as everyone's <laughs> running back and forth, like, who's throwing all these rocks? And then it was just like, Feldo just like taking off half an ear just with his arm, like not a sling, not anything to launch it with. He just chucks this rock. He's described as like a big, strong squirrel, and he carries rocks all day? Yeah. So, like, he's got some beefcake arms on him. <laughs> uh, now, Badrang takes a, a peek over the wall and stops because he spots the sea scarab. Uh, and he calls off the attempted counterattack on whatever is attacking them. He orders Martin cut down and the rest to head into the fortress. Clog is the bigger threat now. Hey, man's Grum got his Rose priorities are... right. He really does. Uh, Grum and Rose are pleased to see Martin bustled off the execution ledge, but the relief fades fast as they see the Corsairs coming ashore. Hastily, they pack up and head for the marsh nearby to hide. Also know their priorities. Mm -hmm. You know, that's another thing I like about the start of this book. Everyone is pretty sensible. Yeah, honestly, uh, we don't really get a whole lot of, like, the vermin themselves having the idiot ball, because really they make, like, logical decisions based on what they know and, like, what they're used to. Yeah. And I will say one more small thing, though, because, like, Grum's all proud of him, like, all, they're all proud, that, like, oh, yeah, we saved Martin, woohoo, we did so good. It's like, they brought him back into the fortress. What's to stop them from just shanking him and throwing him out the window? Like, insert the tuxedo mask here. My job here is done. But you didn't do anything! But you didn't do anything. <laughs> now, Clog is in a fine, evil humor, eager to get into the pretty-as-you-please stone castle, and the slaves no doubt kept inside. Would you like to read the exchange between him and the fox? Ah, uh, yes. Just give me a moment to find my spot in the books again. It's page 32. Thank you. Bless you. Okay. Brr. Captain Trauman Clog, Tr Trauman? 
Captain Trauman Clog was in a high villainous humor. He cut an awkward jig, his clogs clattering noisily on the poop deck. Ha ha ha! I recognize that flag flying o'er yon place ashore. Oh, lucky day, I knowed it. I could feel it in me clogs. There's me best mate of bygone seasons badring. Built himself a stone castle, pretty as you please. How many poor little slaves would you say it took to build? To work on that place like that, Crosstooth? A wicked-looking fox draped in purple bandanas scratched his chin. Mm, I'd say lots, Captain. Lots and lots? Aye, lots and crowds. Which is most, Crosstooth? Lots or crowds? Why bless your art, Captain. Crowds, that means lots and lots. Ha 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 ha! Well said, matey. Break out the weapons while I blaze plans for a reunion party with me old messmate Badrang. I love how he writes Clog. Clog is such a character. I wish he was the main villain. He's so good. He is such a character. I love him. He sucks, obviously, because he's still, like, one of the bad guys. But mm-hmm. also, like, he's so, like, interestingly written. Very. Now, in the fortress, Badrang tries to recruit Martin. Uh, because he's like, you, you've you got spunk, you've got, like, spirit, what if I make you one of my captains? And Martin gives a pretty solid no by lunging forward and biting Badrang's offered paw clean to the bone. People forget mice have very sharp, nasty little teeth. I have been bitten by rats before, and oh boy, does that shit hurt. It hurted. It hurted. It hurty. And it's would you just... like to? Hmm? <laughs> I was gonna say, would you like to read your comment? But you, were, yeah, you began to pretty say much, it yeah, because yeah. it's like I love it when Brian just lets the animals like do animal things. Because so often when he's like riding them fighting, they're fighting like humans with weapons and so on. So every now and then, when Brian remembers that, oh, these are animals, they have like resources that humans do not and he lets them use it like when they bite and scratch and use claws and so on it's like yeah there you go now you're really using your resources mm-hmm. i like it it's good i i had a comment he has tasted blood and badrang will know no peace until martin's bloodlust is sated. <laughs> i mean you're not wrong i'm not uh, once more, Martin is beaten senseless. Like, literally, they have to, like, shove daggers into his mouth to pry his jaws open to get him to let go of Badrang. Like a terrier uh, on Badrang rat. swears... Yep. Badrang swears he will kill him slowly until he begs for death. But for now, he must focus on Clog. Martin is dragged to a prison pit, which is literally a pit with a grate on it in the ground. Um, he lands on something soft... Which turns out to be Feldo. Uh, he has spotted <laughs> stones and is now awaiting Badrang's judgment. He thanks Martin for saving his father. Martin says that uh, Feldo is a true friend. We also learn that Brome is indeed trapped in the fortress in the prison pit. He's younger and more timid than the other two. Scared, too. Uh, Martin comforts and encourages him, mentioning how Rose and Grum are outside, and his spirits do lift mightily hearing that. And, like, the Martin in this book is so soft. Yeah, we get to see much softer Martin, a a Martin that we didn't really get to see in Mossfire, because he was already very jaded. Mm -hmm. He was the jaded, (laughs) tired warrior at that point. Like, this is the young Martin. through some shit. And it... The two older... 
it does make me a little sad knowing that this is like we're not going to get to see this Martin again once he like goes through the shit. Yeah. Uh, the two older beasts keep uh, Brome's spirits up, but once he's asleep between them, let a little of their cynical mood out. Because uh, Brome is like, it'll be, we'll escape, it'll be as easy as picking daisies, and Martin is like, hey, Feldo, when was the last time you picked, like, one of them, I can't remember if it was Feldo or Martin, but they're like, when was the last time you picked daisies? Oh, it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, how easy was it? Uh, some of them were more difficult than others, but they all came up eventually. Yeah. Uh, and all the same for the moment, they're as safe as they can be, so they settle down to sleep. Because they're not going to get, like, beaten or anything while in this prison pit. Because they're, like, nobody's going to, like, none of the, the, the vermin are going to jump down there just to beat them. Right. So, you know, they're, they're fairly safe. Clog comes ashore, making a mockery of Badrang's, uh, Badrang's, you put Badrang. I did, damn it! I told you! I warned you! I know, I know. Uh, making a mockery of battering soldiers when their attempt at intimidating him backfires with his own wild charge. We get this again. Mm -hmm. You know, like, the, this just seems to be a thing amongst pirates where they, they do this, where they just, you know, make a wild run and scare the shit out of it's, the other It's an intimidation people. tactic. I'm bigger than it you. Is. I'm stronger than you. I'm confident enough that I can run at you and you can't hurt me. But ha, it's a joke. Ha ha ha, I'm laughing. Don't you hear me laughing? It's definitely a joke. Mm -hmm. um, he boldly struts in his odd clogs as if he owns the fortress, calling out to vermin he recognizes and teasing how they'd gone all soft living uh, with living on land. Now the game between the two stoats starts. Playing at being friends, never letting the other see if they're scared or on social media, you can follow us on Tumblr and Reddit at Abbey Archives. And if you would like to help support this podcast, you can find us on Coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash HS Enclave. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave. And some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.